Hi, my name's Grant Fishbook, and I am honored to be the lead teaching pastor here at Christ the King Church in Bellingham, Washington. Thank you so much for choosing to access this online content today. We really hope you'll enjoy this message. One of our values here at Christ the King is biblical face-to-face -face community. And so while we are so excited that you joined us today online, I really want to encourage you. Make sure that this is never a placement for face-to-face -face biblical community. Your story matters, you matter, and we want to see you get connected in a local church. Now, if you're here in our area, we would love to have you join us at any one of our five campuses. But if you find yourself outside of the Bellingham area, we really want you to get connected into a local church. So we hope and pray that that happens for you very, very soon. I grew up in a Baptist church where it was tradition to do a Christmas pageant with the kids every single year. It was exactly the same every single year. And so I would go to it every single year knowing that exactly the same thing was going to happen. It always started out with the three, four, and five-year-olds wandering to the front of the church dressed as sheep. Their parents would hot glue cotton balls onto their children. They would put their dad's dress socks on their legs and arms so they would look like sheep and they would wear little ear things and they would wander to the front and some of them would get lost and you would find them grazing on the donuts in the commons of the church because sheep just eat. That's just the way that it was. There were always sheep. There were always three wise men, three 10-year-old kids with Burger King crowns wearing their dad's bathrobes. One of them would carry a brick spray-painted with gold paint. Another one would carry a perfume bottle. And the other one would carry a gift because nobody knew what myrrh was back then, all right? That's just the way it was. Then you'd find a bunch of kids in bathrobes and shepherd's crooks herding little ones, trying to keep them out of the donuts and getting them to the front of the church. There was a middle-aged Joseph with a very bad fake beard who would look very serious all the way through. And then there was a young lady who was Mary, and she was just supposed to look virginal, which was really awkward for everybody, but that's part of the story, okay? And they would hold a strategically wrapped doll that you were supposed to pretend was a real live baby. And then there was an angel choir. 
kids in sheets with tree garland in their hair. That's just the way it was done. If you missed it, I'm sorry. For those of you that are having a a nostalgic moment right there, you remember all of it. I loved it. I loved it. I was a part of it every single year. But I would always wait for my favorite part of the story every single year, and it was probably not the part of the story that you would think it would be, but I just loved it. So I knew it was coming when Joseph and Mary would ride into town And Mary would ride on the back of some poor kid dressed like a donkey, okay? You had to be a bad kid to get put in that role. I'm just saying, okay? And they would ride in, kind of wobble back and forth all the way to the front of the church. And then Joseph and Mary would walk up to a cardboard door that was painted to look like wood. Some of you are nodding. You remember it, right? And they knock on the door. And then the kid with the worst attitude in Sunday school would open the door in his dad's bathrobe and and deliver the two-word line, no room. (laughs) And Joseph and Mary would look dejected and they'd get back on the donkey and they'd ride off into the church kitchen and eat tuna sandwiches until it was their turn to show up in the stable. That's just the way that it was. I loved the angry innkeeper. I wanted that role so bad. I think I could have done something with that role. I do. In my church, if I had that role, we would have had a Scottish innkeeper. There's no room for all you. Go off down the road. I mean, I would have done something with it. Instead, it's just the no room. It's like, no, come on, give something to that. Never got the role. Always ended up in the angel choir. Still bitter. Angels are boring, right? All they do is stand there and glory to God, right? I... I love the innkeeper. And I was a little disappointed when I grew up and found out he's not in the Bible. Some of you were like, what? I know, I just melted your Christmas story. Don't, don't worry, I'll help you in just a little bit. His presence, even though he's not actually in Scripture, is felt in one tiny little inference that comes in the familiar passage of Scripture that we've been telling you week after week after week. Let me tell you the story again. The Bible says, in those days, Caesar Augustus issued a decree that a census should be taken of the entire Roman world. This was the first census that took place while Quirinius was the governor of Syria. And everyone went to their own town to register. So Joseph also went up from the town of Nazareth in Galilee to Judea, to Bethlehem, the town of David, because he belonged to the house and line of David. He went there to register with Mary, who was pledged to be married to him, was expecting a child. While they were there... The time came for the baby to be born, and she gave birth to her firstborn, a son. And she wrapped him in cloths and placed him in a manger. Because there was no room for them in the inn. There it is. That's where it started. No room for them in the inn. And so we built a story around it. That's where the story of rejection of the Holy Family came. Because if there's an inn with no room, there has to be an, an angry Scottish innkeeper who can shout at the Holy Family as they're walking down the street. And that's why this time of year, you often hear messages about making room for Jesus. And they're all good and valuable. But this weekend, I want to walk you through my version of this. It's a story of three rooms as we live in the Christmas story again. And our first room is actually connected to that little word in, okay? No room for them in the in. I'm a Bible nerd, just so you know. I was captured this year by the word in. The Greek word is literally translated as the lower room. The lower room. In Greek, it's kataluma. 
Okay? And it can be translated multiple different ways. It can be translated as inn, which is the way it is in most of your Bibles. It can be translated as guest house, which is in some of your Bibles. But the most literal translation is lower room. And I, I would submit to you today, the reason we're going to spend some time in this room is because it's a room of humility. A lot of questions and debate about this part of the Christmas story because of that tiny little word inn. Some people think the inn was a hotel, right? Ancient version of the Holiday Inn. That's the way it was. Joseph and Mary forgot to make a reservation, so when they showed up at the front desk, the angry Scottish guy behind the desk said, there's no room for you, you got to go down the road, good luck at the Motel 6 or whatever else you're going to try and get into. Bellingham was, or Bellingham. (laughs) (laughs) Context, right? Bethlehem was full because of the census, and that just makes sense. So some people say... No, it was actually like a hotel. Here's the problem with that. In ancient Israel, hospitality was not a business. It was a responsibility. Everybody would open their home to travelers if they were coming through town. So this idea of it being a hotel just doesn't work in people's minds. And they would go on to the second definition of inn, which is guest house. Now, don't think house when you hear guest house, because it actually would have represented a place inside of the walls of an ancient city like a city square where people would go and they called it a guest house. It was free of charge and you could just stay there in the safety of the city and basically just bed down with your animals. So some people would look at it and say, well, no, it's not a hotel, not really a guest house. And the people that have a problem with guest houses because of this. In Middle Eastern culture, it's all about family all the time. So if Joseph was heading to Bethlehem with his pregnant wife, it would just have been assumed that he would have showed up and stayed with his family. Because surely a family would have made room for someone that they knew and his pregnant wife, right? And some of you are like, not if they were my family. That's just not the way it works. Hope you do well over the next week or so. Here's what's interesting. Typical Middle Eastern home had three levels. Top level, the upper rooms were reserved for family, for sleeping, for fellowship. Second level down was where all of the cooking and food prep happened. That's where meals were taken. And then underneath of them was what was known as a kataluma, a lower room that was simply reserved for animals. No matter how you understand it, here's the point. Even in the lowest room, there was no room. There was no space, not even in the Cataluma. So Joseph and Mary actually headed just a little bit lower into an isolated cave. When you hear the word stable, I need you to think cave, not wooden structure, because that's the way it actually would have been. When I take groups to Israel, and I hope someday you can all join me over there, when we go to the church of the nativity in Bethlehem, I always try to beat the group to the church because they inevitably want to go into the church. And I'm like, we're not going in the church. We're going under it. And we walk to a small rock opening and we all have to duck our head and we get really down low and then we walk ourselves into this this low, musty cave, which is the traditional place where they say the birth of Jesus happened. So think cave, think ducking your head, think hot, think humid, because that's where we go as a group and we read Luke chapter 2 and we sing Silent Night. I'll submit something to you. If you can sing Silent Night in a musty, hot cave in Israel, 
I think you'll be okay next Sunday morning if you come and we sing Silent Night and hold a candle in here. Every time I walk into that cave, I'm struck by the humility of my king. I mean, Jesus could have come any way that he wanted to. He's the king of the universe. I mean, he could have come in regal splendor. He could have shown up and thrown a party that would have made the British royal wedding look like nothing. He could have, but he didn't. I'm always in awe of the fact that of all of the ways Jesus could have come, he decided to come low, one step below the lowest room, that he came quietly like a winter snow, like soft and slow, and then he would walk into the world not to be served, but to serve and give his life as a ransom for many. I'm just melted by the idea that the king of the universe would choose to serve his creation. And maybe today that's just what you needed. In the midst of the crazy season, maybe you needed to picture it. The king of the universe swaddled in cloths meant for the wrapping of sacrificial lambs, the lamb of God in human form, tiny and crying and humble and vulnerable and purposeful and looking for you because he's on a mission to save your heart. I got an atheist friend. He does not like church or religion. I love church. I have the same feelings about religion. Hope you know what I mean by that, right? We do relationship here, not religion. The one compelling struggle my friend has with Christianity is with the humility of Jesus. A humble king messes with his non-belief system. He can't do that math in his heart. I think there's something we're all drawn to. We're drawn to a king who would lower himself, especially when we know that that king was lowering himself so that he could connect with us on our level. I've been searching for words for this for 30 years. I think I'm going to give you my best shot. The only way I can explain that is this. Love makes people do crazy things. Love makes people do crazy things. And in this case, it makes a God who is worthy of all praise go one step below the lowest room to pursue our hearts. That's where it shows up in Scripture, kataluma, the lower room. But it's also found one other place in Scripture. And I was struck when I, when I found it because it's used to describe a location that's very significant to people who follow Jesus. You're going to find exactly the same word, kataluma, used in another location in the Bible to describe an upper room. We talked about a room of humility. Now we're going to talk about a room of sacrifice and some of you may be thinking to my English majors in the room, how can the same word be used to describe opposites? Upper room, lower room, it doesn't make any sense. How can they be one in the same? Good question, but we do it in English all the time. During strawberry season, you, uh, you dust strawberries with powdered sugar. You're putting something on them. But you also dust your shelves and take something off of them, preferably with a Swiffer, right? Opposites but the same. It's called a contronym. And it's in the opposite meanings that we actually find the true meaning because it's not about the location that matters, it's what happens in those rooms that matters. So I just told you, there was no room for them in the Cataluma, so God came one step below that. Let me show you another place in the New Testament, the only place I could find where it shows up with these words. So Jesus sent two of his disciples telling them, go into the city and a man carrying a jar of water will meet you. Follow him. 
Say to the owner of the house that he enters, the teacher asks, where is my guest room where I may eat the Passover with my disciples? He will show you a large room upstairs, an upper room, furnished and ready. Make preparations for us there. So I need you to get the picture. Jesus grew up. He became a man. And at the end of his life, he's gathering together all of his disciples. This is after the triumphal entry. It's before the Garden of Gethsemane. It's before the cross of Calvary. And the upper room is a place where Jesus gathers his followers together to share a meal. And then he starts giving gifts away that they don't understand. And he flips their world upside down. In the upper room, the Cataluma, Jesus washes the feet of his disciples. The Bible says that, that at that moment, Jesus showed the full extent of his love. Can you imagine the creator of the universe scrubbing between the toes of people that he made out of his own will? I call that the gift of service. The foot washing was a gift. It was a gift and it was an invitation to partner with Jesus in serving. One of the ways you can partner with Jesus in Christmas this year is to be the one person who takes, who takes your mission as a follower of Jesus seriously. The Bible says, love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. Love your neighbor as yourself. I'm going to tell you something. We don't create invitations at Christ the King to use up paper. We don't do them to, contributing, to contribute to a recycling movement. We make invitations because we have the audacity to believe that some of you may take your love for Jesus so seriously that you'll walk to another human being and simply say this, I have no idea what you're up to on the 23rd or 24th, but my family is going to go and celebrate the birth of Jesus at Christ the King. And we would love it so much if you'd come and sit with us. You know what? They might say no. You know what? They might say yes. Statistics say over 80% of people would come to church on Christmas if someone would just invite them. You're not a puppet in this drama. You're a partner with the Most High God. And all He wants to know is, would you be willing to follow His example? Would you take one step below your lowest room and actually humbly come to someone and invite them into this unbelievable story? Would you actually track with Him through an upper room and wash the feet of one of your neighbors and say, I just want to share this beautiful story with you? That's why we do invitations. They're in the commons. As we tell the story again in the upper room, Jesus actually predicts betrayal and denial. I mean, I'm always struck by the fact that Jesus broke bread with people who would deny him, betray him, and abandon him. I call that the gift of grace. And here's what it means. This will offend some of you. It offends me. Welcome to the club. In a few moments, a group of broken human beings are going to stagger their way forward and, and take Christmas dinner together. And Jesus made all of it for us. And this one thing I know, never has a greater assembly of deniers, betrayers, or abandoners ever gathered in any one place. We are more aware of our brokenness today, but don't you dare allow that to keep you from coming because Jesus said, I got room for that kind of people at my table. You can come. We're all deniers, betrayers, and abandoners at some point. Every single time we sin, 
It puts a roadblock, but God says if we confess our sin, he's faithful and just, will forgive us our sin and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. I read my Bible this morning. It says, though the sins of Grant Ernest Fishbook are like scarlet, only Jesus can wash them as white as snow. In a few moments, I'm going to invite you to Christmas dinner, and I hope you come. Thirdly, in the upper room, Jesus prays for the unity within his family of faith. There's some debate as to whether or not the high priestly prayer that's shared in the book of John actually happened in the upper room. It's interesting. If you read the book of John, it starts with the washing of the disciples' feet. It goes all the way through. And according to that book, there's no change in geographic location, which in my mind leads me to one conclusion. At some point during that evening, Jesus stood up and prayed for unity in his family. He said, I want you to love each other like family. I know family's messy, but I want you to get along. And there's only one way to do that, and that's to be one in our passion for Jesus, one in our passion for our neighborhood, one church, one message, one gospel, one Bible, one Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. It drives me crazy when I hear people say, Grant, we go to the competition. I'm like, you go to the devil's church? That's horrible. No, 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 we go, we go to Cornwall. It's not the competition, that's family. Their pastor's one of my best friends. You talk smack about Bob, I'll hurt you. You mock, you mock his ponytail, I will have a problem with you. Because they're family. Any church in this county that preaches from the Bible and loves Jesus more than anything, that's family. And in, and in this drama here in the upper room in the Cataluma, Jesus said, this is what I want to happen. I want you to get along. I want you to brag about each other. I want you to celebrate the fact that I'm doing something bigger than anything that happens at 4173 Guide Meridian in Bellingham, Washington. God's got a kingdom and we're just a little piece of it. Oh, and by the way, he wants the kingdom to grow. And you're the partner that he's chose to help that process. And then there's the final gift. Jesus shares communion with his friends. I call it the gift of sacrifice. Jesus shares with his friends a simple message with some simple symbols. Bread and wine. Just so you know, we don't use wine here and let me tell you Why? It's because we have brothers and sisters in our church who are walking a road of recovery and sobriety, and we would never do anything to trip you. So we unapologetically serve grape juice because I would need my brothers and sisters in recovery to know this table is safe for you. We want you to come. Let me tell you the story again of what happened in that upper room. The Bible says, while they were eating, Jesus took bread. And when he had given thanks, he broke it and gave it to his disciples saying, take it, this is my body. Then he took a cup and when he had given thanks, he gave it to them and they all drank from it. This is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many, he said to them. Truly, I tell you, I will not drink again from the fruit of the vine until that day when I drink it new. In the kingdom of God, Jesus is saying, I'm going to be broken for you. I'm going to have my blood spilled for you. There's a debt of sin that you can't pay, so I'm going to pay it for you. I'm going to wipe your record clean. Merry Christmas for you. Why is he going to do that? Because God loves you. Because God is for you. Because he's coming after you. And you need to know something about it. He's relentless. We're not quite done yet because we've covered two Catalumas. Now we're going to add another room. 
Jesus entered into the human story one step below the lowest room and then showed the full extent of his love for people in an upper room. But that's not where the story ends. My favorite part of scripture talks about a room when every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that Jesus was exactly who he said that he was. We look forward to the day, that promise of the throne room, and we've walked through a room of humility and a room of sacrifice, and now we're going to move to a room of honor. Jesus was the sacrificial lamb. That's what the Bible tells us. He came to earth and lived a perfect life so that he could be the spotless lamb, the spotless sacrifice to take away the sin of the world. It doesn't make many of us feel comfortable. It shouldn't. But the way ancient Israel dealt with sin was through animal sacrifice. A family would bring a spotless lamb, the best one that they had, to the temple. And that lamb would give its life. Its blood would be spilled to cover the sin of people. And it was personal and it was hard because God was showing us sin costs you something. You lose things that are precious when you choose not to be obedient. The cost is great and the pain of sin, it hurts. But God kept saying blood has to be spilled in order for sin to be removed. And that should make you actually love Jesus all the more. Because Jesus was born in a sheep stable wrapped in the swaddling clothes that were used for sacrificial lambs. He became the sacrifice once and for all so that another drop of blood would never ever have to be spilled ever again for the rest of history. He who knew no sin became sin for us so that we might become the righteousness of God. And that sacrifice sacrificial lamb takes center stage at Christmas time. And I want to read to you what happens to the lamb in the great throne room of God in Revelation 5. Then I saw a lamb looking as if it had been slain, standing at the center of the throne. Encircled by the four living creatures and the elders, the lamb had seven horns and seven eyes, which are the seven spirits of God sent out into all of the earth. He went and took the scroll from the right hand of him who sat on the throne. And when he had taken it, the four living creatures and the 24 elders fell down before the lamb. Each one had a heart and they were harp and they were holding golden bowls of incense, which are the prayers of God's people. Every prayer you utter this Christmas is being collected by God and is precious to him. And they sang a new song saying, you are worthy to take the scroll and open its seals because you were slain with your blood. You purchased for God's person from every tribe and language and people and nation. You've made them to be a kingdom and priests to serve our God and they will reign on the earth. Then I looked and heard the voice of many angels numbering thousands upon thousands, 10,000 times 10,000. That's an angel choir I'll sing in right there. And they encircled the throne and the living creatures and the elders and in a loud voice they were saying, worthy is the lamb who was slain to receive power and wealth and wisdom and strength and honor and glory and praise. And then I heard every creature in heaven and on earth and under the earth and in the sea and all that is in them saying to him who sits on the throne and to the lamb, be praise and honor and glory and power forever and ever. And the four living creatures said, amen. And the elders fell down and worshiped. How can we not respond in the same way today? Knowing that the sacrificial lamb invited you to Christmas dinner. So in a moment, I'm going to invite the faithful of God. Oh, come all ye faithful, joyful and triumphant. Some of you need to remind your face that you are triumphant because of who Jesus is.
Some of you need to enter fully into Christmas joy because you're going to be in the throne room. We're going to sing that song at the end, and then we're going to sing another song, and you're going to stick with me all the way through because we're not near being done yet. But I'm going to wrap up my part with this. I think the innkeeper gets a bad rap. (laughs) Nobody thinks of him in a positive light, right? He's the angry kid with two words, no room. And it's not in my Bible, but you know what I love about him in my head and heart? He doesn't focus on what he doesn't have. And that's always what God calls us to do. He focuses on what he does have. Because I'll tell you what, when I was 18 years old, all of my rooms were full. The rooms of my heart were full of anger and rage and frustration and sin. I decorated the rooms of my life and painted them black with my disobedience. But God loved me. He was for me. He came after me. And he was relentless. And in a moment, when I was 18 years old, I said, God, I don't have any more room, but I got a room out back. A little room that nobody else goes to. It's where the real me shows up every once in a while. And I don't know about these other rooms, but I'll give you that one. Totally blew me away when the God of the universe said, I'll take it. I'll take it. But just so you know, I'm not going to stay in the back room. I'm going to slowly but surely overtake every single room in your heart. I'm going to redecorate. I'm going to tear it. I'm going to paint it white. I'm going to bring light, refreshing new light into every dark corner of your soul. I'm going to turn your life upside down. I'm going to change you. I'm going to, I'm going to transition you. I'm going to transform you from the inside out. You're not even going to be able to recognize yourself. When I get done with this extreme makeover, it's going to blow your mind and melt your heart. I need you to know this. Jesus will take up residence one step below the lowest room because he loves you that much. He wants all of you, but he'll start there. How can we not worship a God who'll start one step lower than the lowest room so that one day his children can be all invited to a different kind of party? in the throne room. So church, I'm going to invite you in just a moment to stand with me. Oh, come all ye faithful, joyful, and triumphant. Come to Bellingham (laughs) and worship the lamb who was slain. We'll sing, oh, come all ye faithful. And then Andy's going to give you an opportunity to give back. And then we're going to sing joy to the world again because we can. Because at the end of the story, the baby grows up and he wins. Merry Christmas.
Thanks again for watching. We're so glad that you joined us today. Once again, we hope you'll get involved in biblical face-to-face -face community wherever you happen to be today. If you'd like more information about Christ the King Community Church, if you'd like to give online, or if you'd like to submit a prayer request, or even get connected in a small group, you can find out more about us at ctk.church.